0: This is The Guardian. Today, Ukraine's army held off a Russian takeover of Kyiv in the first phase of the war. Why phase two is going to be much harder? A few weeks ago, Russian forces withdrew from around Kyiv and many other cities across Ukraine. It was the end of the beginning of the war. Then they started positioning men and equipment, preparing for the next chapter.
1: What we've definitely seen, where I am, I'm in Kyiv, is we've seen a, an escalation of attacks by Russia, a whole barrage of long-range cruise missiles which smacked into Lviv in the west on Monday um, and hit other targets in Dnipro, and
0: an intensification of shelling too
1: in Kharkiv.
0: The Guardian's Luke Harding has been watching the start of this new phase. It does feel
1: like the sort of drums of, of war are beating here and
0: something is about to happen. Ukraine has shocked the world and the Kremlin with its incredible resistance to Russia's invasion. But the trenches and wide open spaces of eastern Ukraine are another story—a different kind of war. <laughs> this week, Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky said the battle for Donbas had begun. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, can Ukraine's army and its people withstand the next phase of Putin's war? Luke, if the decision to retreat from the outskirts of Kiev and other areas marked the end of the first phase of this war, what do we know about Russia's plans for this second phase?
1: That's right. Phase one was definitely this overambitious, multi directional raid by Russia, where there was the confident expectation in the Russian high command that Kiev would fall in a matter of days. I mean, to the extent where Russian soldiers who were trundling through the pine forests from Belarus south towards Kiev actually pat their parade uniforms because they really anticipated little or no resistance from the Ukrainian military and thought that the operation would be similar to what happened in Crimea in 2014, where Russian special forces basically took over the peninsula unopposed. Now, we know how that plan worked out. It didn't work. And the Ukrainians defeated really the Russian military around Kiev and the Russians withdrew at the end of March. You've lost thousands of troops how many troops yes, have, lost? We have we lost? we have significant losses of troops and uh, it's, it's, it's a huge tragedy for us. Russia started this war saying it was going to demilitarize and de-Nazify Ukraine. And Vladimir Putin is now talking about liberating the Donbass. In other words, the war goal has changed.
0: Phase
1: two. It's a large scale offensive operation, essentially to take territory under Ukrainian control next to separatist run areas in in the east, which have been controlled by Russia or their proxies since 2014. Bear in mind that Russia already has a land corridor from Crimea. It occupies the south, um, Kherson province, uh, Zaporizhia, the adjacent province. And it's got this sort of horseshoe shaped Stretch of territory. And what they're trying to do, a bit like a sort of kid with a coloring book, is to sort of fill in the gaps. They want to sort of shade in from north to south, ideally encircle the defending Ukrainian army in the east, and to sort of shade that eastern chunk of the map red.
0: Okay, so the first phase of this war was what you called a multi-directional haphazard invasion that didn't work. The second phase of the war then is to try to consolidate these areas that Russia has been eyeing off since 2014. But Luke, is there something about this eastern theatre that gives you a sense of how this fighting might be different to the kind of fighting we saw in the first phase, where they were trying to cover a lot of land and get to Kiev as fast as they could?
1: I mean, I think there are probably two signal differences this time around. One is, one of the problems that the Russians ran into last time around in phase one was supply lines, that there were conscripts who gave themselves up because they were hungry, that they were given supplies for three days because the assumption was within three days they'd be in Kiev, And, you know, fuel lines broke down. North, It doesn't look as if that massive convoy is really moving anywhere.
0: A lot of analysts think that it's now stuck in the mud and it, and it may be practically useless.
1: Whereas in the eastern theater, much easier to supply from Russia, whether it's ammunition or food, or fresh soldiers. The other difference is aviation. The Russians have a, despite taking pretty heavy losses, have a very serious and superior air force and they can kind of bomb targets. I've talked to civilians over the weekend in Chernihiv, which was bombarded for a month, and they were saying that the most terrifying thing was Russian aviation. Those are the differences. But at the same time, essentially, they just have to advance and take territory. And and my
0: prediction is that it it will not be easy. And what about the Ukrainian army? What chance do they have of holding off this much bigger Russian force?
1: Well, I've met the Ukrainian troops in the east. They're highly motivated. They're professional. They know how to fight. They've been fighting already uh, for, for a long time. Evicting them is going to be quite hard. Their problem is that they lack heavy weapons. And this is what Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelenskyy has been saying every single day, you know, give us airplanes, give us tanks, give us heavy artillery. And they have some of this, but not enough of this. And also, they don't really have much of an air force anymore. They've got some air defences, which leaves them powerless to defend against Russian airstrikes. So... You would think that they would find it hard to struggle. And yet every so often, what we've seen in this war is Ukraine does something completely spectacular. Russia did have a major military setback today, confirming the flagship vessel in its Black Sea fleet has now sunk. Ukraine says its missiles were responsible. Russia- My understanding is that Ukraine only has about 10 anti-ship missiles. It waited six weeks and then it, it used two of them and it sank the, the Russian flagship carrier an episode which has caused you know, enormous anguish and recrimination back in moscow so i think
0: this phase 2 will have some surprises in store and, Luke, have we seen signs of a recognition within the Russian army that so far its invasion has not gone to plan? Having failed in those early objectives to quickly take Kyiv, is the Russian army now changing its battlefield tactics? Are we, are we seeing any sign that they recognize that there's a need to do that?
1: I think the change in tactics is just dark and awful. And that the, when Putin declared the special operation, as he called it, he said it was against Ukrainian military targets. And the Russians have been very frustrated. Quite often, they haven't been able to, well, they certainly haven't been able to kind of eliminate as many targets as they would have wished. And instead, what they've been doing is, like they did in Chechnya in the in the 90s and early noughties, like they did in Syria in 2016, is just bombarding civilians, killing innocent people, children, old people. And it's just become this grinding tactic, which I think is designed to demoralise Ukrainians and to sort of stop their will to fight.
0: And look, what is the value of of that tactic? I mean, why destroy a city that you one day hope to take? I mean, you can't really govern over a place if it's been turned to rubble, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. Again, with a dismaying answer, you, you would think that if as Putin suggests, he wants to liberate the Donbass region and make Lugansk and Donetsk part of sort of Russian territory effectively and have them flourish, that he would use more careful or refined tactics. Whereas, actually, I think the goal is more brutal and more realistic than that. And that's essentially to just kill Ukrainians uh, and to wipe out Ukraine as an independent country to cannibalize parts of it. Uh, No matter what the cost, no matter what the human cost, I mean, look at Mariupol. The last defenders of the
0: city were given an ultimatum. Surrender by this morning, or you will not be spared. Those Ukrainians still left
1: have decided to fight on. It was a city I visited in late January, and it was a flourishing, quite prosperous port city. Where there'd been an enormous amount of development since 2014, and now it's a desert. It's an apocalyptic landscape of rubble uh, and bodies.
0: In places Russia has already taken, like the city of Kherson, are they trying to set up new leadership? are we seeing any attempt to actually govern these places full of people who presumably don't like them very much, don't want them to be there?
1: One of the most chilling aspects of this invasion is what Russia has been doing in the territory that it, it now occupies, stolen from Ukraine, or I guess the Russians would say liberated. A Russian military police officer came, and that soldier just asked him, OK, well, what should we do with this civilian? And that guy uh, told him, OK, shoot him. What Russia has been doing is they have been rounding up people they regard as pro-Ukrainian. So they've been a- arresting local mayors, journalists, museum directors, the better educated, interrogating them, in some cases killing them. In the latest reports suggest Russian military has installed a new mayor in the city of Militopol after detaining former mayor Ivan Fedorov. Their assumption is flawed, is that basically there is a sort of thin pro-Ukrainian elite and the mass of ordinary Ukrainians are, are, are quite happy to live under Russian rule. Now that that clearly isn't true. I, th- I think the Russian leadership is hated here by everybody. It's a universal thing. But we're seeing this kind of cleansing. There's a word in Russian, z- zachiska going on in places like Hezon. And we saw yesterday in a port city that I visited in January, Genichesk, which has been under Russian occupation for a few weeks now, a statue of Lenin was put back up on the main square where there's now a Russian tricolor and a Soviet Union flag. I mean, you couldn't get a sort of greater symbol of Russian, you know, cultural dominance and and I would say imperialism. So it, it seems to me the plan for these occupied territories is essentially to rule them ruthlessly and to annex them ultimately um, into the Russian Federation.
0: And look, in the end, is control of Donbass what this was all about from the very beginning? Or is this just the victory that's available to Putin now, the kind of second order priority that he, he can potentially reach for?
1: I think Putin's plan is to subjugate the whole of Ukraine. That's the plan. But I think Donbass is what is doable in time for May the 9th. which is the annual Victory Day parade in Red Square. I've seen it. You you, you sit on a tribune and you watch these gigantic intercontinental ballistic missiles trundling serenely over the
0: cobbles. And
1: it's a display of, of Russian military might and Russian military prestige. And I suspect that what he will do is he will sort of declare a pause, say that he's reconstituted Novorossiya, which is new Russia, which will include Kherson, obviously Crimea, Zaporizhia, the Sea of Azov, Mariupol, uh, much of Donetsk Luhansk. And he'll offer a sort of kind of pseudo-truce to the Ukrainians saying, well, you know, we can stop, recognize this. The Ukrainians won't accept that. And and then, of course, the fighting will continue.
0: And so... In that scenario, if the Russians do manage to take these areas that Putin's had his eye on, offer some kind of truce, and the Ukrainians say no, what happens next?
1: I, I think the fighting uh, continues. I, I've talked to a lot of Ukrainian government people here who are in Bankova, which is Ukraine's Downing Street. It's where President Zelensky is. And I was, having, I was chatting to someone yesterday, and uh, he said, look, we have to win. You know, we should win. And I said, well, OK, well, what does victory look like? And victory for the Ukrainians under the current circumstances is, first of all, peace, and secondly, going back to the borders we had before February the 24th. I mean, that's their kind of finishing line, I think, if they could do that so they would be able to get back Kezon, get back Zaporizhia, get back Mariupol, and so on. I think anything short of that, and and the war continues... (laughs)
0: the war does grind on and settle into a kind of frozen conflict, is that going to test the mettle of Western governments that are currently very supportive of Ukraine? Like, is there a fear that especially as living costs increase as a result of these harsh sanctions on Russia, as well as other economic conditions, that some of these governments might start to waver in their support, at least in terms of the amount of military aid they're giving Ukraine.
1: Yeah, it's partly a question of human nature. I mean, we all all get fatigued. But I mean, having said that, I do think Ukraine is slightly different. I think the Ukrainians have been brilliant at putting out a message that this isn't just about their struggle for survival. It is a, a more metaphysical conflict. It's good versus evil. It's freedom versus tyranny, democracy against the totalitarianism, and also the argument that you guys will be next. In other words, if Ukraine falls over like a domino, then it'll be Poland's turn, then it'll be the turn of the Baltic states, Moldova. A video message to his people, trying to prepare them for the days to come. There's also, you know, Zelensky, I mean, has been an incredibly effective communicator backed by TV speechwriters. Snow is falling, this is spring. The war is the same as spring. Severe. But it will be all right. We will win anyway. Done a kind of brilliant job so that you see the Ukrainian flag all over the world. There's a lot of romantic solidarity from ordinary people. And and politicians, of course, the, the clever ones, the populists, they take their cue from people. So I, I, I think the support for Ukraine will continue. Whether the, the delivery of heavy weapons continues, I don't know. I mean, the Ukrainian army is burning through the stuff at a terrific rate. But for now, I see a lot of cohesion and solidarity from the Western democratic world in support of Ukraine.
0: Looking forward a bit, we know what the first phase was, and now we're seeing the opening of the second phase. Are there likely to be third phases, fourth phases? I mean, where could this war go next after Donbass? Yeah,
1: interesting question. I mean, I was talking to a former Ukrainian diplomat who's very sort of plugged into the Ukrainian intelligence community, and he was laying out phase three and phase four in in a way I think, which is quite plausible. So I think phase three would be an attempt to do what Russia wanted to do right at the beginning, which is essentially to seize the port city of Odessa, and uh, Mykolaiv, another city which has been holding out really indomitably against massive Russian attack. And to connect Crimea with Transnistria, which is a a relic, a a fragment of the Soviet Union. It's a breakaway part of Moldova, where some Russian troops are already stationed. So essentially to seize all of Ukraine's coast uh, on the Sea of Azov and on the Black Sea, uh, leaving Ukraine as a kind of landlocked Rump state. Mikulai
0: was also shelled again.
1: Explosions
0: were heard in the morning there. The consequences of yesterday's attacks on the city are still being. Calamified. And then
1: this phase four is almost certainly to, to try and seize Kiev to have another go, and perhaps after the Donbass has fallen to advance from the east to the west to gobble up central Ukraine and and then to push on Kiev and to to topple Volodymyr Zelensky's government and
0: probably to kill him as well. Luke, looking back at some of the lessons the Russians ought to have learned from the first phase, one of them is that they clearly tried to rush things. They tried to keep to a schedule that was unrealistic. And you told me that that the schedule for the Donbass campaign could be to try to wrap everything up by May 9, this victory day parade. And it makes me wonder, have they learned anything? Are the Russians at risk of making the same mistake again?
1: Michael, it's hard to talk about the Russians. I mean, essentially what we're talking about is Vladimir Putin. We're talking about one man. This is one man's war. A a man who's almost 70 years old, who spent two years sitting in a bunker, brooding and reading history books, contemplating his role in this sort of grand tapestry of Russian history, and who's decided that it's his almost sort of sacral imperial mission to bring Ukraine back into uh, into Russia. Update everyone on some of the problems in the Kremlin. There's a Russian security services expert uh, who's just speaking out saying Putin put two of his top intelligence officials under quote, house arrest for providing poor intelligence ahead of the invasion. So I think the military campaign is to a large extent being led by the politics. And, and bear in mind that, that Putin is many things. He's a KGB officer, he's a president, he's a bureaucrat. He's a career spy, but he's not a general. He doesn't actually know anything about about fighting, about how to win a successful war. Is there anyone inside the Russian government who can even give him the bad news? That is less possible than overthrow him. So we have a frustrated, aging civilian leader trying to direct and micromanage an overambitious military campaign. It may succeed, but I don't think there's any guarantee of that.
0: Coming up, Russia has the manpower in the East, but does it have the willpower to fight a long war? Luke, on paper, looking at this Russian campaign to take the Donbass, you've got to say they have the advantage. Like, they have the technology, they have the numbers, they have many more resources than their Ukrainian opponents. Is it inevitable, just a matter of time, that they will take this region? Or are there other factors here, other factors in war, that aren't so tangible but could prove decisive? The problem is, you know, where people are
1: like... linear development, maybe it's because we've watched too much sort of Netflix, where everything has to have a beginning, middle and an end. I think this conflict phase two could be where we have a middle, middle and a middle, rather than a beginning, middle and an end, uh, essentially kind of messiness, where yeah, I'm pretty certain the Russians will take more territory, but they then may lose territory in, in offenses from the Ukrainian side. And also they will take huge losses, but it was quite interesting watching the most recent speech by President Zelensky where, where he was suggesting in rather an arch way that because of sanctions, Western sanctions against Russia, they would eventually run out of military stuff, that there was a finite number of missiles they could sh- they could shoot. Meanwhile, we hear reports, again, difficult to confirm that, that some Russian soldiers don't want to fight. There's a sort of scramble for manpower to patch up regiments that took heavy losses in the first phase of the campaign. So we'll have to see. But I think it could be messy. I I don't really think either side, certainly in in the the next few months, will be able to land a decisive blow
0: on the other. And at the centre of all this, what that means ultimately is that Ukraine is going to remain a shattered country, that no matter how brave its people are, it's going to be a country that is menaced by its neighbour for the foreseeable future.
1: I mean, at the risk of channeling Hobbes, the uh, kind of political theorists, or or reworking Hobbes, uh, I suspect that this war in Ukraine, this Russian invasion, will be nasty, brutish, and long. I don't see a resolution coming anytime soon. I mean, if Putin loses, I think ultimately his regime falls. And there are questions about whether he would survive in that scenario politically and possibly even physically. If Ukraine loses... It, it ceases to exist as a country. It becomes a faraway 16th century kingdom, which you, you just read about in history books. So the stakes are enormous. They're existential for both parties. But my, my feeling, and maybe this is more out of optimism or, or perhaps romantic hope than, than cold common sense, is that Ukraine will prevail, perhaps not in its kind of current borders, but it will survive, it will win this fight. It will win this national battle.
0: That was Luke Harding, a senior Guardian foreign correspondent currently in Ukraine. Thanks very much to him. You can read all his coverage of the battle for Donbass at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Sammy Kent. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Mithley Rao and Phil Maynard. We're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.